This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Guardian Football Weekly. Now this pod cannot complain about managers getting sacked the day before we record, but there was quite a lot to get through before Leicester and then Chelsea made their decisions. We'll begin with Graham Potter. Is it surprising that he lasted so long or that Todd Bowley decided now was the time to move? What next for Chelsea and for Potter? You don't get too many goes at the top table. Something that Brendan Rodgers will attest to. Rebuilt his reputation at Celtic and then at Leicester. And now what? Amidst all of that, it's as you were at the top. First off, City came back to demolish Liverpool before Arsenal maintained their eight-point lead with an ultimately comfortable win over Leeds who are still in trouble along with half the league down their huge wins for West Ham and Bournemouth the big win for Newcastle in the race for the top four Manchester United in the title race a couple of weeks ago now could miss out on Champions League football for another season there's the invisible saliva of Daniel Podence and the inevitable apologies for not noticing how good Aston Villa are and failing to spend the requisite time on a six goal thriller at the Amex all that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly Adam says the big beasts of Football Weekly. Dave, can't wait. The golden generation of Football Weekly just never achieved what they should have done. Barney Ronay, the all-new Barney Ronay, welcome. It's funny, isn't it? Because Nick Cave also said, whenever I listen to a podcast, there's always something really shit going on. And it's Football Weekly with a load of (laughs) middle-aged blokes who've been on it for years. He said that about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, didn't he? It's always there. Is Nick Cave not? I think, is Nick Cave not? Do you not think he's a big Football Weekly fan? Is he more football ramble, Nick Cave? Possibly. Isn't he Australian? You should know. Isn't he one of your new media friends in Australia? (laughs) He's one of my friends. You're right. It's me, him and Luke Carpenter going out on a session as soon as I finish recording. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. Hello, Barry Glenn Denning. Hello. I'm I'm guessing Nick Cave's probably listens to more Brighton-centric podcasts. He lives in Brighton, doesn't he? He's probably a Brighton fan. Absolutely no idea. And <laughs> yeah, I, I was a little bit worried that I hadn't spent enough time researching West Ham v Southampton, but I already we're talking about stuff. I have no idea what you're going on about. Um, Todd says, is the surest sign that the American consortium in charge of Chelsea don't know what they're doing? That they've sacked Potter in time for it to be a lead story on the back pages and podcasts as opposed to a footnote recorded 
after it finished. I don't think we have that much power. Uh, but look, Graham Potter sacked as Chelsea manager following that 2-0 defeat to Aston Villa, the increasingly impressive Aston Villa. Uh, the statement said, Chelsea FC has announced that Graham Potter's departed the club. Graham has agreed to collaborate with the club to facilitate a smooth transition, whatever that means. In his time with the club, Graham's taken us to the quarterfinal of the Champions League where we will face Real Madrid. Chelsea would like to thank Graham for all his efforts and contribution and wish him well for the future. Uh, Bruno Salta will take charge of the team as interim head coach. They're 11th in the league. They've spent nearly £600 million. His win percentage is, is less than 40%. Wilson, why hasn't it worked? Uh, I mean, it, it may be that... Yeah, the easy answer would be that Potter's not cut for this level, but I mean, and that might be true, but I just don't think you can judge him on this. It's a, it's a ludicrous situation he's found himself in that... He arrives a week after the, the transfer deadlines closed, in which they they brought in uh, I think seven players, six of them fairly major names, and those six players were presumably thinking, "Well, hang on, I signed for Champions League winner. Uh, I was told all our plans for the future. I was told about this new era of stability at Chelsea, and now he is this bloke who's managed Brighton and Swansea, and I don't really know anything about him." And that was destabilizing enough. And then in January, he gets another. I don't know how many players he signed in January, but you know, eight, eight, another eight in January. So they've got a squad of thirty-four now. I think it is none of whom seem to fit together. Uh, there's nothing that Todd Bowley's said in public suggests he understands that constructing a football team isn't just about going out and buying loads of good players. That there is, you, know, you have to sort of put them together in the right order and find sort of synergy between them and find an internal coherence. Um, a squad of thirty-four is unmanageable. As soon as things go wrong, people start pointing apart, going, oh, yeah, he's not charismatic. He's not screaming on the touchline. Well, no, he's not. That's not who he is. You'd never have expected that. I'm not sure I would help in this situation, but it's an easy stick to beat him with. So it's just, yeah. A year ago, Bowley arrives promising stability since when he's gone on the biggest spending spree in the history of English football and done what the Bramage never did, just to sack two managers in the same season. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I, the one thing I'm disappointed about is we didn't get to see how it plays out because I'm I'm convinced that with Potter in charge they had more chance of winning the Champions League if only because at the start of this job he said that he'd never even been to a Champions League game he'd never even been to watch a Champions League game and then the idea of him taking them all the way to the final was just so so Graham Potter I, the one thing I've really enjoyed about him is the way his pronouncements are like some ironical like a brilliant sitcom character, like a comment on the, oh yeah, it's been a bit hectic, yeah. And well, the, the, the owners, <laughs> they must be clever people. They're billionaires, aren't they? That was my favourite one, um, which I think was serious, but could have been like a brilliant sort of Brent, uh, you know, uh, Brentism from the early office. I, I just think it, it's, um, yeah, you've created a totally stupid situation. Um, I've kept squinting at this thinking, there's some brilliant plan that we can't see and Todd can. It's like a magic eye picture. Like you just don't understand. We are disrupting this where we've got, we, we, you know, we, I thought maybe they know something. Maybe they know there's going to be this all misdirection. There's going to be some hyper league announced next week. And that's all that really matters. Spend all the money you can now. Just it's not important because nobody could be this stupid or this destructive or walk into an industry they know nothing about and attempt to reinvent it instantly. But it seems that somebody can, and that somebody is one of Chelsea's co-controlling partners. It's very strange, and uh, I agree that Graham Potter's reputation, not exactly enhanced, is it? But uh, I think he has enough credit um, to go somewhere where they want a Graham Potter. 
and where he can hopefully his confidence hasn't been damaged too much that he will just plant himself in some proper soil and just it's like one of those dreams you have when you've got food poisoning like this just didn't happen it's it's not real um i had a dream about bruce forsyth the other day that seemed so real um but it wasn't real and you know graham just think of it like that were you getting up to you know into scrapes with no with no do you want to know what it was uh i sure there's not a lot to talk about today so I'd done an analysis of Bruce Forsyth where I determined that the reason he was so successful on television was that he started all his sentences on a very down and then went up. So it's like, good evening, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, rather than good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the show. So he always did the former. And I was doing a sort of talk at a conference where I was saying, this is the secret of Bruce Forsyth's success. And this is valuable information that I can sell to you. Uh, probably I could have got a job at Chelsea with that kind of thing. It sounds like something <laughs> Todd Bowley would come out with. But that sort of, that's what I'd compare it to. Barry, uh, Miguel Delaney tweeted um, sort of behind-the-scenes stuff. Some Chelsea players had to look up who Graham Potter wa- was, which seems extraordinary. There were inevitable jokes about his wizard namesake with references to Quidditch. I mean, he's called Graham Potter. He's not called Harry Potter. So it's, it seems ridiculous. Um, it summed up how the squad never really took him seriously. We did hear when he got the job, right? He'd never coached elite players, right? Players who had won stuff. And I guess that is different, you know, to... to as soon as results don't go anywhere, or if you do something in training that, that they think isn't great, if they're already making Quidditch jokes, it seems I can't imagine I mean, Matteo Kovacic and well, the, 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 the story the story I heard about that was it was particularly the, the French speaking players uh, that they all called him Hogwarts, but also <laughs> and yeah, you have to forgive me. I, I've never I've never read any Harry Potter. I've never seen any Harry Potter, but apparently Mudrick looks like. Malfoy? Yeah, just a little bit. So the, they, they yeah. all call him Malfoy, and the joke was that Potter didn't pick him because of the natural enmity between Potter and Malfoy. Right, I see. <laughs> They've really thought this through, the French contingent from... Uh... Anyway, Barry, you, your thoughts on this? It's not a surprise he's been sacked. I think you could legitimately argue he could have gone a lot sooner, and he could have been given more time. Um, it does appear to be a bit of a shit show at Chelsea, and he is not, by no means, the only person to blame. I mean, Barney has already outlined Todd Bowley's apparent many shortcomings. I I don't know much about baseball, but I I believe the LA Dodgers, which he and someone else at Chelsea sort of co-own, they seem to be quite well-run baseball team, and there's quite a lot of stability there. It's kind of weird because. At Man U, you have the Glazers who own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and they seem quite well run and they seem to take that far more seriously. You can imagine this merry-go-round, which I'm already confusing myself. Potter will end up at Leicester, where he would probably do well. Rodgers could go to Spurs. Chelsea should, could come in for Roberto de Zerbi, which would suggest instead of buying Chelsea... Uh, Todd Bowley should have just bought Brighton. It would have ended up being an awful lot cheaper. <laughs> And it's what he's doing anyway. But I I don't think Potter's uh, reputation will be irreparably harmed by this dismissal. I He does strike me as the guy kind of guy who will very much take it to heart and be deeply wounded by this, this outcome because I think a lot of people expected him to fail and he kind of has, hasn't he? Yeah, I, I think, but I think it's interesting that, you know, you say his reputation won't be affected, but, but his reputation at the absolute top level, Wilson, you can't imagine another big side like 
Champions League type side going for him until he's rebuilt somewhere else. Because if he failed again, you'd be like, well, what on earth have you done? Like it's not necessarily because of him, just because of how it's happened at Chelsea. I think for Potter, this is a massive blow. Uh, yeah, I mean, cushioned by whatever payoff he's got, which I, I, I'm, I mean, he was on twelve million a year, wasn't he? So mm. it could it, it, he's agree. I think it's not the whole thing, but that would have been fifty million. It's insane, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you know, he, he, he even without the payoff, you know, he's been there six months. He's that six million quid he didn't have before. I mean, you know, less tax and whatever, but. In a sense, he's slightly unfortunate that the Leicester jobs come up now because you'd sort of think he'd be perfect for Leicester. Yeah, slightly more money to spend than Brighton, probably a slightly higher ultimate ceiling. I hope he doesn't take it now because I just don't think these rebound jobs ever really work. I think once you've been sacked, you need to go away, you need to have a break, and you you, know, you need to come back refreshed. I think you saw with Dean Smith going to Norwich. I get you want to get back on Barry's merry-go-round, but but maybe. Maybe it's wise to take a little walk around the fairground and have a toffee apple first. Is Barry standing on one of the horses, just holding it, you know, looking cool? <laughs> you know, just, just yeah, <laughs> a fag out of his mouth, dropping yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Spinning around your wall, sir, because <laughs> there's a pretty girl sitting in it. Like Chelsea are looking at possibly, you know, Deserby, maybe Nagelsmann, Pochettino, Luis Enrique, Hansi Flick. Who who should they? Yet, because we talked about how this squad is sort of bloated and pretty hard to manage. What, whoever they get, there's no ideal candidate because nobody's ever had to manage this situation before. It's there's no. It's not just for Potter. It wasn't just uh, this new level. It's this new level that's never looked like that before. I mean, no one is prepared for that. My fear with Chelsea is that this is not a benevolent billionaire. It's not a sort of political project. These people are kind of high energy, disruptive mega capitalists who go in and try and shake things up. What are we, what are we working on now? We're working on this. We're going to try and shake this industry and make, you know, find value in it. And it won't go on forever. Um, Chelsea not going to be in the Champions League now. They're going to face possibly financial fair play penalties. All of the players they've bought have gone down in value. Maybe not all of them. There's a couple have done well, but no one else is paying Chelsea prices. So it's, not going to go on forever. It's quite possible these guys all think, you know, let's go and muck around with hydrogen batteries instead. But you don't have endless money. But how much money can you realistically make at Chelsea now, having thrown all that? And part of being a good capitalist is knowing when to cut your losses. And I don't know where that would leave the club if they were to decide we can't act like this anymore or you're going to have to find a new way to make money or we're off um, because so much capital has been spent and debts accrued and all that kind of stuff. So... I'm a bit worried for them. I don't think this is a period of stability at all. I think it's a period of high jeopardy. Before we talk about Brendan Rodgers, uh, a few people got in touch. RM Cole saying, has anyone noticed that Aston Villa are really good now? Mike says, might get lost in the pot of Fiori, but Villa are suddenly two points off sixth place. What price Unai for another Europa League? I, I mean, that run, the run that they've been on since he took over has been extraordinary, Barry. Yeah, I think we got grief a couple of weeks ago for not giving them enough credit and... Uh, they have been playing well. Having said that, and it was an excellent win um, against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, when you, if you look at the stats of that game, you're wondering how did Chelsea not win it, or at least not score, but then we know scoring has been a problem for them. They did have quite a lot of chances, but Villa are hugely impressive. That John McGinn goal was an absolute beauty, and he spanked one off the bar as well, didn't he? But Unai Emery was pilloried when he was at Arsenal. It didn't go particularly well for him and he wasn't 
a great communicator at press conferences and that led to him, a lot of people thinking he was a bit of a busted flush and wondering what all the fuss was about. But he has really knitted that side together and the just players... <sighs> Well, they're just really good, you know. Their the, the movement, <laughs> their intensity—they all have each other's backs, and uh, in a way, they didn't before his arrival. And it, it it hasn't taken him long to do that or to knit it all together. There, Graham Potter, then the thirteenth Premier League manager to leave his job this season. Twelfth was Brendan Rodgers a few hours earlier, following that last-minute winner. Uh, for Roy Hodgson's Crystal Palace. These sentences out loud sound so ridiculous. What is Roy Hodgson doing there? But anyway, Leicester are now second bottom. Yes, Wilson. And it's the uh, it's the first time team managers have been sacked on the same Premier League managers have been sacked on the same day since I think October the fourth, two thousand fifteen, when it was Brendan Rodgers and ah. Dick Advocat. So if Brendan Rodgers gets sacked and you're Premier League manager, just turn your phone <laughs> off because it's not going to be good news. What do you make, Wilson, of that? sacking or a mutual consent I mean they lost five in six um, the chairman said uh, performances and results this season have been below our shared expectations um, It's be, it had been our belief that continuity and stability would be key to correcting our course particularly given our previous achievements under Brendan's management I mean I, I think it's you know, relegation is looming they need to do something this is something and, and often that works if, you know, if you're stuck in a rut you need some kind of uh, shock to, to, to jolt you out of that and the easiest shock you can apply is to get rid of the manager so yeah, things haven't been good there all season I think they probably hoped that, that the World Cup and that break would allow them to reset but their form since the World Cup has been dreadful and they, they look they look doomed you know, the, the, there's been very little since the World Cup to suggest they might get out of it so I guess with, with sort of roughly a quarter of a season to go just under a quarter of a season to go now, now probably is the time to, to act just to try and Try try and keep him in the in the division. Get Carter says in the absence of the general media criticising Brennan's time at Leicester, any chance of the pod doing some analysis on a coach on ten million a year who failed miserably with a talented squad this season and who hasn't been able to get several different players to defend in over two years? Where, where how do you rate what Brendan Rodgers has done at Leicester, Barney? Oh, I think he's done pretty well. They had a good team, finished fifth twice and won the FA Cup. But this season, I mean, the problem seemed to stem from the summer where they he wanted, obviously would have wanted to sign certain players and they, they didn't because they couldn't. And it always, this happened at Spurs as well. I remember they had a winter uh, window where they signed nobody and everybody seems to forget. I mean, you do need to refresh your squad. You need the players to be motivated by new people arriving. And, and then a year later, you're arguing about whether the manager's done a good job or not. I mean, so much of football comes down to finance and recruitment. And I don't think that was ideal. I think I do think Rogers kind of runs out of energy at some point. Um, you kind of see it happening. He becomes sort of drained. And I think some part of him loses interest. He, he, um, he clearly had to go. Um, that, that, team, that squad and team is too good to be relegated. James Madison is a brilliant player. And you shouldn't be anywhere near going down with him pretty much guaranteeing you goal-scoring chances constantly. And they have other, you know, really seriously good footballers in that squad. So I agree, he definitely had to go. But I wouldn't say he did badly or he was a failure. Um, he's in an interesting position now. His career could sort of go either way. I still think he's a really good manager and his teams play really nice football. And he knows how to manage top players. Um, and it, sort of, he could step either way now, I think. I think that, that cr criticism of him from the listener is pretty harsh. I mean, it hasn't been good for the last 
14, 18 months, but he won the cup with them. He almost got them into the top four twice. That's pretty good for, you know. The one big criticism I would have of him, and I, I think Barney is, is fundamentally right, it is about the the, the, the transfer issues of, 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 of the summer, which I think possibly contributed to, to, to Rogers' sense that, that this was a project running out of steam. But they, the, the inability to defend set plays for two years it really baffles me. Yeah, I, I know I said this a lot with Lampard. A sign of a manager just not doing the basics of his job is if you keep on conceding goals from set plays. Now, there might be reasons for that. It might be you have a team full of players who are five foot six, in which case it's not, not like you can do. Harry Souter is definitely not five foot six. Yeah, I know there's that fast. You know, they, they, they... Well, you could, you could also get a player who's five foot seven. There is something. You can... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, that, that inability to defend set plays, it's just what, what, what are they doing? Like, how can you not put that right if you're a Premier League manager? You should be able to work out a way of, you know, of, of, of rectifying that situation. And the fact that for two years he's not been able to do so, that I think the blame does come down to him. Graham Potter, favourite for the Leicester job. Uh, Rafa Benitez, second favourite. Uh, Thomas Frank, uh, the third favourite. Um, yeah. And it'll be interesting for Rodgers. I mean, he, he could feasibly do a good job at Spurs, Barney, but I just, I'd almost be certain that most Tottenham fans would not be excited by that appointment. <laughs> no, probably not. But I mean, what, what are Spurs fans excited by? I mean, what, what, what would be the... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's going... Really, it's like you're the the other thing. We have to have the other thing. We've appointed this furiously angry, proven winner, um, a man so angry his gallbladder literally exploded while managing Spurs. Let's manage unproven non-winner who's nice and probably had his gallbladder removed at birth. Uh, doesn't even need to deal with gall at all, and just sort of is nice. I. Yeah, it would be terrible. It would all go wrong. I don't know where... I feel where we need to protect Graham, but I don't know where he could go. He should probably... I don't know. He needs to work in a nicer industry, just sort of selling spoons or something. <laughs> I don't know. Whittling. His, there is a shop on the Hackney Road where a man just whittles spoons. Graham could go and work with him. Massive result for Roy Hodgson anyway, so uh, good for him. And that we haven't mentioned any actual football. I know you did mention the John McGinn goal. That touch from Mateta is actually sensational because the way Ayu fizzes that ball at him, it's quite hard to control it and lay it into your path and finish it off. So look, well done to Crystal Palace. Um, and that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll go to the top of the Premier League. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. And a while ago, we appealed for you to send us pictures of 
Football Weekly panellists in the wild, uh, ideally not just after a live show hugging them, but just maybe you know one of them or went to school with one of them or or bumped into one up a mountain. I don't know. But anyway, please do this. It'll make Jonathan Wilson very happy. Uh, Football Weekly at theguardian.com. Um, was that a good enough plug, Wilson, do you think? Yeah, no, that was that was great. Thank you. Okay, uh, I appreciate that. Right. But, but please, please, if there's, there's literally thousands of you. You can do better than you've done so far, although I do thank the people who have already sent some in. But, you know, we, we need these. I need these just to fulfil the contract. I, I was on a plane the other day going to um, wherever England played, um, Italy, Naples. Um, and um, there was a guy on the plane who was you know, a football fan. We were getting off the plane. I was with Dazed. And he came up to me and went, uh, can we just take a picture? And then all, immediately, without stopping in his senses, he went, oh, no, no, that's ridiculous. That's sorry. That's, uh, and walked off. <laughs> I just felt instant em- embarrassment. What am I doing? A, and, and I kind of thought that's a really good Football Weekly kind of moment. That's how I expect Football Weekly listeners to be. And then I, I end up standing next to him in the queue and he turns to be a very, very nice person. So we had the equivalent of a picture, which was a nice long chat uh, with nobody oh, needing to. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But well, he can't help us then. So, no. you know, he's no use no. to us <laughs> the actual photos. Um, uh, it's as you were at the top of the Premier League. Arsenal, eight points clear. City have a game in hand and they have to play each other. That's on April the 26th. Uh, the early kickoff was Man City beating Liverpool 4-1. Barney, you were at this game. I mean, this feels like a lifetime ago to me. What were your big conclusions from this one? Well, City were really good. Um, they picked a, picked a really powerful team. You know, the back five, John Stones at the kind of roving right back. You know, Rodri is a, a unit among units. And they that seems to be working for them at the moment. Ake's been really good at left back. And, uh, you know, in front of that, Alvarez was brilliant. De Bruyne was brilliant. And Grealish was brilliant. And, I mean, I what I noticed happening, it's sort of painful to watch now. I'm really bored of Liverpool having the same flaw, of wor- worrying about Trent Alexander-Arnold's defending. But I've learned to sort of read what Pep does, um, I've learned to read his body language. You know, he's constantly moving. I think I could get a job if any Premier League, you know, hierarchies are listening, sitting in the crowd with a kind of microphone saying, okay, I know what they're going to do. He's got all these movements. There's the sort of cocaine-crazed accordion player, which means we need to condense the space between midfield and attack. Uh, there's, uh, There's one where it's like throwing a grenade into a trench, which means you need to go further out and stay on your touchline over there. And there's the one he was doing here, which is like fly fishing. He's fly fishing and he's lunging, which means we need to play quick diagonal passes in behind the fullbacks. And he was doing this constantly and yelling at Kevin De Bruyne, who was like nodding uh, before they scored their equaliser. And the second goal came from this. And I'm thinking, what? why are you not watching what he's doing? He's literally telling you, What's going to happen? You don't need a cheat sheet. You don't need to spy with binoculars and annoy Frank Lampard. He's saying, this is what we're going to do. And I'm watching it. And they did it. And it was so predictable, but it was brilliantly executed. And what the moment I enjoyed most in the whole game was Julian Alvarez's pass out to the right for the second goal, which was instant and just brilliantly done. He's a really good player. I think he's the third best centre forward in the Premier League. Um, which is quite a thing, given he's such a fill-in. City could win the treble. They've got 17 goals left, 17 games left. They could win all of them. Simon says, is Alvarez the best backup since Max Rushton in the glory years of Football Weekly? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, and Ian says, City's win without Haaland. To what extent does it strengthen the argument that they are better without him versus how many would they have got with him in the team? 
Um, I, I didn't think the camera panned to Erling Haaland enough during this football match. Sort of, I reckon it was like 60% him, 40% the actual game. Um, but Wilson Barney mentioned Jack Grealish there and he, I mean, I don't know if that was his best game for City, but he's on this wonderful run of form now, isn't it? And now you sort of feel a bit silly questioning how much they spent two years ago or whatever it was. Well, not really. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people made the point uh, that uh, wide forwards often take time to settle into the Guardiola side. Um, you know, we saw it happen uh, with uh, David Villa, even back at Barcelona. We saw it happen with Mahrez. Some of them fall by the wayside. Some of them do adapt and and, and you know, find the, these purple patches of their career. So I, I think to be critical of Grealish last season was was reasonable, as long as you had that caveat of, well, this, this does happen. I thought that interview that Grealish gave on the pitch on the final day of last season after they'd won the title was was one of the more, more interesting interviews I've ever heard a player give, despite Michael Richards talking over top of him, where he was sort of talking about how difficult it was for him to have to sort of you know, restrict his, his, his instincts, but then to try and make the the application of Guardiola's instructions instinctive, uh, which for, you know, I, I thought Grealish actually explained it incredibly well, of what it's like to be a footballer like that and come into a totally different system, have to learn a system and how you're second-guessing yourself. But you've got to stop second-guessing. You've got to make the right move your your first guess and now he is doing that and and yeah I think certainly since the World Cup I think he he's possibly been City's best player um, but then a load of players are in really good form for City De Bruyne had that dip but, but he's I think the last sort of month or so he's played pretty well John Stones is playing brilliantly so yeah I mean this was it was partly Liverpool being terrible and it's partly City being really good again and I know I've now gone back to thinking they're going to win the league because basically Arsenal have got to win Every game they play, apart from one against City, uh, even though they're five points clear, you know they 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 can't afford to slip up, and I can't see how they they get anything out of City. So therefore, they've got to win all the eight other games, and one of those is away at Newcastle, uh, and that and one of them's going to be at home to Chelsea, and I think they're very hard hard things to do. One of them's away at Liverpool. I wonder if the biggest story from this game is Liverpool, Barry. I mean, it's a it's a, a repetitive story. It's one we've had before, but down to eight, there was that little time when we thought, oh, maybe look, they'll race into the top four because that'll be the Liverpool that of old. But they were miles off it. And I know City are good, but they were just sort of they played into their hands, like Barney was saying. I, I don't really know what to make of Liverpool at all. They have these glaring weaknesses that either aren't being addressed or can't be addressed because they don't have the players to address these issues you know they were completely overrun in midfield the balls going in behind the full backs as Barney alluded to uh, is a constant problem for them which Jurgen Klopp doesn't seem to be able to fix you know they also beat Manchester United 7-0 and they're really good at home on the evidence of this game Arsenal should batter them but it's at Anfield and Liverpool are a completely different proposition there but they're away from home they're just really bad and they look slow and out of energy and this uh, he- heavy metal you know mentality monster attitude just isn't there anymore can i ask you a question wilson about um sorry back to city about john stones going into midfield and because i've been so conditioned by whoever's playing right back to be right back and sit at right back and if they go wandering then there's a big hole why is there not a big hole when he wanders in midfield or is it just doesn't count because City just have the ball. I mean, it's partly City control the game through possession, but it's partly the the times when he goes to the midfield. So the reason he does it is the Guardiola has, uh, I, th- I think, 
uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen him speak specifically about this, but he appears to have this belief that you need five outfield players behind the ball at all times, and the most effective disposition of those players is uh, you know a, a three in a defensive line, then two you know, deep line midfielders, although not necessarily midfielders, sitting just in front of them. And I, I think actually generally football history suggests that is that that sort of trapezoid shape is very solid. So if you think back to the, the WM, that's how the back of that would have been, three defenders and two deep line midfielders. Uh, if you look at, say, um, Conte's team at Chelsea, it was a back three with two deep line players. I think where that came unstuck was a few teams around that period were, were playing that sort of 3-4-3 or 3-4-2-1 you know, type shape. And I think the, the reason why that had a very brief um, moment in the sun before being discarded is it makes you quite predictable from an attacking sense, which I think actually Chelsea is still suffering from. Their team is, the squad, I mean, you know, who knows what's going on with the squad in the last year, but certainly until the last year, the squad was sort of set up in that way, but that left them incredibly dependent on the wing-backs to, to give them attacking width. So, so then you need to change the, the attacking shape, and if you do that, well, you do have to make adjustments further back. But fundamentally, you have the ball, you're worried about the opposition getting the ball and, and counter-attacking quickly. The best way to stop that is that 3-2 that shape. Now, if they're switching the ball out to to where John Stones naturally would be, they're switching it out to the left wing. And that's kind of where you want them because once they're out to the flanks, you can bring players back and you can stop the path into the centre. So I think I think it works because it's being used to, to counter the counter rather than in, in other circumstances. And I think Stones... I mean, he's only really done it with three games, hasn't he? There's uh, the Leipzig game, the Palace game and, and, and the Liverpool game. And there may be others, but they're the three that sort of stick in my mind. I, you know, he's he's done it brilliantly. That he he, and it's, it's not clearly you know, it's not a question of purely of technique. It's a question of tactical understanding, understanding of space, and understanding when he should go there and when he should go back to a more more orthodox position. Uh, a lot of people were exercised about Pep Guardiola celebrating in the face of Simicas. I, I, I don't think we need to spend hours on that. Let's let's talk about the Arsenal victory. Um, Arsenal 4 leads 1. Perfect response to City's win. Took a while to get going, Barry, but once it did, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, Leeds gave them plenty to think about for the first half an hour. I think created more chances. Crescentia uh, Somerville was causing them all sorts of problems. Then Luke Ayling gives away a really dumb penalty, which uh, Gabriel Jesus scored. And uh, that was it. Game over, pretty much. Arsenal... Just wanted at a canter after that. Um, I've heard people saying it. Jonathan saying there that, that he thinks Man City will win the league. I, I, I still think Arsenal will do it. I just don't think they're getting the credit they deserve for just how good they are. And uh, but you know, who knows? They, there's always the potential for them to Arsenal it up. Uh, but that's seven wins in a row now. Um, Arteta's hundredth win as their manager, and yeah, they're they're set fair, I think, for to win the title. Arsenal easily not win the league and get over ninety points. If if they win seven of the last nine, I'll talk and take them to ninety three. That's ninety three points is an incredible tally, but City can still get more. So if these are never it's never kind of one side great, one side terrible. It's not about failure. Uh, you know, Arsenal got themselves in a great position. They could have a a really good final quarter of a season. And still not win the league. It's it's still hard to beat this city. This city are, are phenomenal. 
I would question if you understand football at all, if you don't think it's one side great, <laughs> one side terrible. What, what do you think this is? <laughs> Ridiculous suggestion. Uh, but they are, they are, you're right, they are, they're scoring a lot of goals uh, at this stage, which is not a sign of a team tying up. And lots of different goal scorers. And they seem to have a lot of people now. Like Trossard is a really good signing. He's got loads of Brilliant assists. signing. That's such a good signing, yeah. Yeah, and Jesus has come back, and he, um, like, he's really important to them. You know, he clearly is a good team guy, and he he's got a lovely sort of cheeky face. Not that that's not important, but it is in a kind of. There's a lot of um, pressure on them, and he's someone who's been there in those kind of teams before, and they, they seem to have a lot of people and a lot of options. And they, I feel, I used to think that City would definitely pull them back. If they if they get a draw, the Etihad, that's probably it, isn't it? Yeah, that that game is key. Having seen the game at, at the Emirates when, certainly in the second half, City were comfortably better. Um, Arsenal need a big improvement on that game just to avoid defeat at the Etihad. If they avoid defeat there, it's a totally different equation. But I, I'm sort of already writing that game off. Then can they win eight or nine when one of them is at Newcastle, when one of them is at Anfield? I think that's really tough for them. I think City's fixtures look easier. John says, should we all follow Ben White's example and not watch football? Yes, afterwards he was asked, Barry, if he'd watched the City-Liverpool game. He said, no, I just don't watch football, which is very refreshing. And I guess he does spend a lot of time playing football all day and then matches and then warm downs. So it's quite nice that he doesn't want to watch it. I just wonder if, do you need to watch football if you're a footballer? Surely you need to watch some of it. Probably not. I mean, most footballers like football. There are well-documented cases of footballers who don't and just do it because they're good at it and it's a very well-paid job and quite probably a nice lifestyle. But he has said this before. It's not news, really, that he, he's not much of a football fan. And, uh, yeah, yeah if he, he's clearly quite good at it. So, obviously, doesn't need to watch it. <laughs> Well, presumably he's getting given video clips by the coaching staff at Arsenal you know, to, to say, you know, look at this, focus on this. And so as long as he's doing that... He refuses to watch, he refuses to watch those. <laughs> he puts one of those, he puts glasses with his, with like eyeballs on the top of <laughs> um, Leeds, uh, just a point above the relegation zone in 16th, actually start this game pretty well uh, before ailing decided to uh, kick Jesus in the knee. Uh, we'll talk about the relegation battle in just a second. Before that, we'll go to Newcastle, Manchester United. Um, uh, you wrote about this, Wilson, from a Manchester United perspective. I mean, Newcastle were dominant from start to finish, weren't they, in this? Oh, yeah, much, much better. And the, the contrast of the League Cup final was incredible, which I, I think partly shows what difference Casemiro makes. But I think partly Newcastle have come out of that little slump and they're, they're, they're playing really well now. So I thought, yeah, it was a, it was a really poor United performance. And then, you know, their away form against uh, top half sides is is not good this season. Isaac looks impressive, Barney, to me. He's a really good player. It was a good signing. It just goes to show when you can afford really good players, you you improve as a team. Um, but I, I mean, I'm a big I'm a big Ten Hag guy. I mean, I often think that's sort of based in I just kind of like him, his intensity and his sort of puritanical nature. But you have to say, compare. I mean, Eddie, Eddie House had. Six months longer in the job, isn't he? Is it six months? Um, he has done a really good job with Newcastle. They do look really coherent as a team. There's things they do that surprise. I didn't realise that Eddie Howe's teams, I always thought of Bournemouth as a kind of nice, light, sort of fun team who might 
uh, you could sort of brush aside slightly, but would win quite often. But Newcastle are, are really physically powerful. They're kind of they've got a little bit of shithousery about them. They're kind of notorious in the Premier League for not being nice to play against, for being awkward and irritating. And uh, I I think that they are they are going to end up in the Champions League. And it is even though they've obviously had a big budget and you suddenly lose all your fear, your anxieties about signing players uh, when you're taken over by a country. Um, he's done a brilliant job and it did kind of show up the limitations of what's happened to Man United so far, a, a revolution that's based around having Casemiro and, and Christian Eriksen in your team, which is kind of good, but is it really uh, the future? Mm, I think you're right. When you look at Longstaff, Willock and Murphy all starting in that game, I just think this before this season, Barry, I'd never look at them and think, I just go, well, they're pretty average Premier League players. There's nothing special. Yeah, and to a certain extent, I think that might still be the case. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. But... They play very well, though. They did play very well. I, I, I've been hugely impressed with Sean Longstaff, actually, because I thought he'd be bummed out, you know, in uh, no time at all. And I'm surprised he's starting in that team. I mean, I, I think Ten Hag... I'm an admirer of his, but I think he got his selection wrong in that game, although his hand was forced, obviously, by injury and suspension. The tactics weren't great, and the players just didn't seem that bothered. And, you know, Newcastle wanted it more, and the St. James's Park has gone from being this just pit of despair and apathy to arguably the most hostile environment in the Premier League, and it's it's not going to be easy for any team to win there, you'd imagine, and not not many teams have won there. If I'm if I'm mistaken, I think Liverpool are the only team that have won there this season. And the absurd thing now is there's this this perpetual mystery of how a Tottenham always fall. <laughs> if they beat Everton, the third <laughs> <laughs> can't be real. It can't be real. It's called isn't the phrase um, failing upwards? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what you do? You fail. You have to remember everything that Man United is basically the owners for. Everything that happens comes down to stupid uh, middle management and stupid ownership. I mean, the reason... Why, why is Valt Veghorst playing number 10? The reason they could only afford Valt Veghorst is because they signed Cristiano Ronaldo, which is the stupidest thing you could have done. Um, and sorry, you know, his fans, but that's been kind of proven now. So, I don't know, you are doing the job with uh, one leg tied behind the other knee and a hand tied behind your back and trying to keep a kind of straight face while you're doing it. I mean, they could drop out. That's interesting. You say Tottenham could go third if they beat Everton. Almost certainly won't. But like, imagine I could drop out from going from being in the title race three weeks ago, Baz, to dropping out altogether, which is eminently possible, um, would would be bad. (laughs) And I mean, all, all these things that are happening, you know, Liverpool getting absolutely monstered by City, Manchester United playing fairly dismally against Newcastle. Newcastle uh, being third, possibly finishing runners. Or well, they won't finish runners up in the title race, but probably getting the Champions League. It's making you know a lot of. It shows up uh, us up as complete morons because you know our opinions change so often during the season. We get everything wrong, but um, yeah, there's a very good chance Manchester United won't finish fourth. Will that mean Eric Ten Hag hasn't been good there? I don't think so. I think he is doing a good job there. But yesterday, he he didn't. He had a bad day at the office, as did many of his players. Yeah, I suppose one of the difficult things is, you know, you have to keep talking about the season while it's going. 
And as well, Wilson yes, said, there's yeah. a quarter of it left. I mean, that's quite a lot of a season, <laughs> isn't it? Those games are the, they're worth the same, aren't they? I mean, it should be said, Tottenham will have played two games more than both Newcastle and Manchester United. So them being third is a slightly false stat. But I, I think you saw again, yeah, this, the Ten Hag revolution isn't just based around Casemiro. But his his revolution is is has been uh, stymied by the fact, uh, you know, one of his best three or four players is still David De Gea, who is not a goalkeeper who fits the way he wants to play. So, I, I sort of sensed towards the end of the first half, beginning of the second half, maybe Manchester United are, are coming back into this. Maybe they've weathered the storm. And then how does how does the opening Newcastle goal come? It's a really nice move, the Isaac pass and you know the chip to the back post headed back across. But how does the ball get to Isaac in the first place? It's a throw-in, and the throw-in's given away because of a poor De Gea ball out from a goal kick. So if De Gea... I mean, yeah, you, you can always trace it back to whatever. De Gea's parents had never met, <laughs> is what you're saying. Well, it, it, yeah, it's the same as the at, at Brentford when they lost 4-0. De Gea not being able to pass out from back creates issues, which then other issues are compounded upon that. Look, there's, there's a n- number of ways in which Newcastle did very good things after that, in which United possibly could have tried to stop them a bit more after that. But still, that begins with a Manchester United goal kick and they give the ball away. A, a, a goalkeeper is better with his feet. Now, De Gea made you know, a brilliant double save first half. That parry from uh, Jonathan Header in the second half. De Gea had a really good game. But his inability to play out from back means that Ten Hag is compromising his revolution you know, at, at the outset. And, and that, that is a problem that needs resolving. Last week, I was on holidays in Spain and I was in a sort of holiday home compound where I'm told David Hayes' parents live and uh, or at least have, have an apartment if they don't live there all year round. And I did notice a conspicuous number of no ball games signs up in Spanish, <sighs> which would explain why David Hayes isn't as good with the ball as his feet as he should be. Mm. Well, it doesn't explain why he's quite good at catching it, does it? I mean, that's still a board game, isn't it? <laughs> like, still. Well, maybe he's always stopping the board games. Like, stop, stop, <laughs> stop playing that football. And he was brilliant at getting his mates out of trouble. Don't you think it's funny that until quite recently, you were basically you were either a good goalkeeper or a bad goal. There were two kinds of goalkeepers: good ones and bad. Being a goalkeeper was just this one thing of catching the ball, getting in the way, looking cross, and that was it. Dominating your area. And the idea that there was a tactical element to being a goalkeeper is so recent. Like, it's like getting rid of Joe Hart at City. It was like, it's just, how can he do that? How has that happened? Why has that happened? It's Joe Hart. He's good at being a goalkeeper. But um, we didn't seem to realise there were more that I certainly didn't really take that on board. It's like the idea that you could only play 4-4-2 when Ericsson was England manager. But it never occurred to anyone that the answer oh, to the situation was a simpler slightly changed. Well, yeah. Obviously, we have to play 4-4-2. Like, so how do we deal with it? It was never it never occurred to anyone there was another formation. It's weird. Uh, worth pointing out, on Thursday, the Premier League approved tougher men- measures for its owners and directors test that would bar anyone found to have committed human rights abuses from owning a club based on the global human rights sanctions regulations. I mean, it feels a little late uh, doesn't it? Um, a group of Newcastle and Manchester United fans uh, joined forces on Sunday to call for a ban on the sale of clubs to states who could use their ownership for sports watching human rights abuses. Newcastle United fans against sports watching and United against sports watching uh, issued a joint statement uh, in the build up. 
to that game uh, and that'll do for part two. And I know just to add to that, Max, uh, Newcastle United's owners, the uh, the fund, which Tracy Crash was very definitely a fund, have told the world in an American court that they're in fact an arm of the Saudi government. So they can't do proper discovery because they're part of the sovereign state. So that is an impossible circle to square. We are being told in legal, we, we heard about legal undertakings, didn't we? Legally binding undertakings that they're not owned by the state in this country. But in America, it is the state. So the, the someone has to somehow make that make sense. All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do uh, the relegation scrap and Brighton-Brentford. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Chris says, with Ethan Pinnock scoring and Robin Cowan talking about the bright lights of London on her commentary on Match of the Day, was Brighton-Brentford the most football weekly game ever? It's a brilliant game, this, Wilson. I mean, the XG was wild. Brighton got 4.85. I don't think I've ever seen that on XG. I think every one of their 10 outfield starters, Chapa said on Match of the Day, uh, had two efforts on goal, and yet they didn't win. Because, I mean, it's back to pottery with Brighton not being able to take their chances. But, but yeah, they they were. I mean, as far as you can tell from the highlights, they they looked exceptional. And uh, yeah, Brentford do what they do, which is they're, they're quite direct and they're quite they you know they they have a lot of cutting edge doing that. So, it it was a great game. Um, I, I guess Brighton is still just about in the race for top four. You know, I, I, we probably shouldn't get too fixated on that because they probably won't get it. It's been a brilliant season for them anyway. And I, I you know, I would look forward to seeing them in the Europa League next season. And their fans should should really enjoy that because, you know, I think if your club that hasn't been in Europe, to have the chance to go and watch, watch your team play in Europe, it must be a great thing. It's interesting that a lot was talked about how Brighton played great football at Brentford, knock it long. And Matoma's goal, Barry, was Jason Steele hammering it upfield. I mean, I, I guess if you're not expecting it because they don't do it very much and then, you know, all the players are coming short. Actually, tactically, it's super smart. But it did just look like keepers just not just gone full League Two. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pleased to see Jason Steele doing well because he sort of had a very public kind of meltdown slash mental disintegration in, in one of the series of Sunderland Till I Die. And I kind of felt a bit bad for him because he was just having a really bad time at Sunderland. Uh, and he's been playing second fiddle at Brighton, but great pass, lovely finish, one of several excellent goals in the game. Two brilliantly run clubs, owned by two men who really don't like each other, I believe. Uh, used to be business partners and then fell out. And uh, the draw, probably not great for either of them. Uh, Brighton should have won, but Brentford are a really, really good side. And that directness serves them well. You know, Ethan Pinnock scored another worldy, uh, stealing in at the far post to, to prod home a free kick. And he also had a goal line clearance, which uh, if he doesn't win the Ballon d'Or, I, I would be very <laughs> surprised. Yeah, Joe says, please let Barry know that when Ethan Pinnock scored against my beloved Brighton yesterday, although I was fuming at our shocking defending, I was thinking of Barry as Pinnock celebrated... <laughs> What a performance from him. <laughs> if you keep saying something enough. <laughs> do you think Ethan Pinnock is a good player, Barry? I mean, do, do you, do you, I mean, well, yes. Has, has, have you watched him more because of that goal? And like, like, do you now study his work? I do focus on him now. He, of course, he's a good player. He's, you know, a, a regular starter in a very good team, Premier League team. But I, I would hate people to think I'm ridiculing him in any way. Uh, but just the mockery I was subjected to for 
my genuine <laughs> assertion that that was a goal of the season contender is tap in from three because it was just a brilliantly orchestrated uh, free kick routine that he happened to finish off, I think, because Pontus Janssen, who was supposed to finish it off, happened to miss the ball. But that that's Brentford for you, you know, they're just really... Thomas Frank is a very clever manager and, and he's assembled a very good team. So the bottom of the table, um, Palace are 12th still, obviously. They have 30 points, which is almost breathing space, is it? No, it's not really. They're only four points clear of the relegation zone. Wolves on 28, West Ham, Forest, Bournemouth on 27, Leeds and Everton on 26, Leicester on 25, Southampton on 23. Um, they've played between 27 and 29 games. Look at a league table while we're having this discussion. I mean, massive victories, Barney, for Bournemouth and West Ham. And the Tavernier goal for Bournemouth was just something joyous, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was brilliant and helped by having a camera angle right behind the flight of the ball. So you can 100%. see it going outside the post and also dip. And also the goalkeeper who must have known as he saw her going, but he knew he wasn't going to get there, but he did it the, the good grace of diving to make it look even better because he was at full strength and could get nowhere near it. And I loved the way he was so hyped up to Verney. He was really, really on it. And it was sort of great to see. And I liked the needle in this game. Uh, that that was real and unforced and kind of really gripping, and uh, uh, yeah, you know, good on Steve Cooper, who I always it's always fascinating to watch him. Gary O'Neill, Gary O'Neill. I'm on Bournemouth. I'm on Bournemouth. Fulham. <laughs> oh no, there are lots uh, yeah. of others, aren't there? Uh, sorry. Uh, all right, just forget everything I said. Rewind. Ask someone else. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fine. Um, which goal were you thinking of? The the Pedence uh, goal or the you know, because you were right about the goal, Listen, the camera last angle. Night, that was last right. night, I was supposed to be watching Match of the Day um, and Graham Potter gets sacked. And I haven't been paying any attention to football. So Ben had to ring me up from the desk at 9.30 and ask me to write something on Graham Potter. Oh, so all, no. All of my record, I had Match of the Day on in the background with no sound while I was writing about Graham Potter. That's my only knowledge of all. All these games. You were, your analysis of the goal was excellent, and then you suddenly moved to Nottingham Forest. Rules, it's all a blur. I was literally <laughs> asleep and thinking about Graham Potter. Some people were scoring and looking pleased. Yeah, but actually, you make a good point about inadvertently, possibly, but how it does all the bottom of the table is sort of it's quite like that, isn't it, Wilson? Like it's very hard to know, like. Just by now, it's never this concertinaed, and like those wins for Bournemouth and 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 West Ham. Then the next day, it just you can't write, but you can't write Southampton off. Now I'm going through all the teams as well. It must be confusing to listen to. I mean, I'm quite tempted to be writing Southampton off. Uh, I mean, you you can't. They're not obviously they're not down, but I, I'd say they are. And this is an absurdly banal thing to say, given that they are bottom of the table and have fewer points than everybody else. But I think they are the most likely team to go down. Okay. Yeah, and they've hired a ma- they hired a man who looks like a manager. <laughs> well, it's better than they did with the previous appointment. In fact, yeah, yeah, we need a guy who looks like a man. This guy looks. He's got a coat. <laughs> I did. I did a bit of work for Puma before Christmas, and they they, they sent me a load of a load of kit. There's some amazing right. trainers that have. But anyway, a part of, part of, this is obviously just the end of line stuff we're getting rid of. But they sent me an enormous uh, manager's coat. 
So this huge box arrives, <laughs> and it, it, it's got you know a couple of a couple of running shirts and and and, and the trainers in the bottom. But then this, it's just a vast coat, like one of those big sort of padded Arsene Wenger style bench coats, uh, which I have since given to charity because I was never going to wear it. But I could I could have got a job because I could have worn that and looked like a manager. <laughs> Barry, who's going down? Southampton, Bournemouth, and Everton. Wow, Everton is an interesting shout, isn't it? And Bournemouth, I think, I keep feeling like Gary O'Neill, we almost got to an analysing that game after the goal. Um, he's actually done such a great job to keep them in this hunt. And I, I keep, like you, I'm still relegating them. But like, he made those two changes at halftime, which changed that game. You know, and he deserves a lot of credit for them being, well, now where are they? They're, what, they're not in the relegation zone, are they? They're 16. Yeah, I mean, there's... It doesn't really matter at the moment who's in the relegation zone. You know, we keep saying there's a quarter of the season to go. They're tightly concertinaed. He seems to be quite good at changing games sometimes, Gary O'Neill, and then other times not being very good at it at all. I mean, there are fans of Southampton, Everton and Bournemouth are going to be angry with me for saying they're going down. Why pick on us? But just be pleased because I'll almost certainly be wrong and your team will stay up. Well, I just I don't see Everton finishing below Leeds. I think Leeds are in. I fear for Leeds. I like Leeds. Uh, I miss Jesse Marsh, uh, but I think they might be in trouble. We haven't yet talked about Forest Wolves. You did get onto the needle in this game, Barney. Um, and we can now talk about the invisible the invisible saliva of Daniel Podence. The FA is looking into a spitting allegation against him. Uh, Brennan Johnson appeared to suggest that Podence spat at him. The video assistant referee, Neil Sorbrick, did check the incident, uh, but didn't tell Chris Kavanagh to take action. I've seen it back, and I'm not going to add any fuel to the fire, said Steve Cooper. There's pictures and videos, so you have to trust the authorities to deal with it. I mean, the, the truth is, Barney, we couldn't we couldn't see any spit. We could, we could see the we could, maybe it was a dummy. We don't know. Well, he'd be, he'd been running at that stage for over an hour, and what happened? What we're seeing there is a failure to gather mucus in the moment. That's what, what. Let's be honest. That's what's happened. He's not been able to. If he'd given him just as it was instinctive, it was very much in the moment. As um, as as Forrest quite magnanimously pointed out afterwards, if he'd had a second to gather himself, just to freeze the moment, like a finisher, like a goal scorer, you freeze the moment. He would have been able to gather mucus, and he'd now be facing a three match ban. It doesn't make any difference, though. I mean, if you try to punch someone and miss, it's the same. It's the same sanction in law and in football as successfully doing it. Failing to be able to spit properly is not an excuse. Like, I, you know, if I shoot at you and miss, it's still uh, I've tried to murder you. I mean, that's never happened and it wouldn't happen. Well, it's 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 the difference between murder and attempted murder, isn't it? You, you get a lesser... There's no difference. But you get a lesser, no, you lesser don't. sentence no, you don't. for attempted murder. Failing to murder, you, you don't get a lesser sentence for being a bad murderer. Oh, this guy's a good murderer. Let's give him twenty years. This guy's a bad murderer. We give no. It's the same. But, but but you're you're not a murderer if you've if you've attempted and failed. No, it doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't matter. You still tried to do it. Just because you succeeded doesn't make it a worse offence. Wouldn't it be better have to have the bad murderers out on the street though, and imprison? I suppose the good so. Murderers? It's just a natural selection. 
Yeah, people, four people, luckily four people tried to murder me today, but they're all bad murderers who've been not allowed not to go to jail, so I'm fine. <laughs> but no, no, Max, that makes no sense, because if you've got somebody whose life's ambition is to commit a murder, like the, the, the protagonist in the Hitchcock film Rope, for instance, you know, you don't want him, he can't be allowed to have like five or six goes to get it right. It's not like passing a driving test. <laughs> it's, the, it's the it's the 10,000 hours <laughs> principle. You can get good at it, isn't it? It's like players can improve. Eddie Howe can make them better. Like that's what he can do. Like, you know, you just get the right manager in and you can go from being a bad murderer to a good murderer. How do we know if he can, if Daniel Pedence can ever produce mucus? We, he might be mucus-less, mightn't he? He, might he, be he should have said, hold on a second. I want to space at you, but... I've been running around for a long time and it's quite hot. I'm just going to rush to the touchline, take a drink of water to, uh, you know, get some moisture and then come back. You, you can have a spittoon by the bench that they could gather the mucus in for <laughs> use at a later date. Well, someone else's mucus or they'd have one each. Have each player would have their own yeah, you, mucus you, pot. You can have team mucus <laughs> in a squad game these days. So and then do you do you does then Daniel Penance just pour it over Brennan Johnson or does yeah. he drink he drinks the spit of other Wolves players? I I realise I'm moving into the area of Barry's expertise, which perhaps is not where we've been for the rest <laughs> of this conversation. But you get a super soaker and but when I was when I was um, writing about the uh, England Argentina quarter final of the '66 World Cup, where there's a lot of allegations of spitting, I went through the whole tape of that game looking for spit. And obviously it's right. impossible because it's grainy black and white footage. It's impossible to see. But you could see a lot of um, a lot of players sort of making a spit-type gesture, a lot of players reacting as though saliva's landed on them. But you couldn't trace the spit. Uh, in fact, I think there was one where you, you could see a slight kind of lightness on the frame. And I think I think Nobby Siles was the 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 uh, receiver of a spit, the spit victim. Right, um, the spitty. And I, I, I have to say, I thought those days were behind us. But then, even with your super slow mos and your you know fifty frames a second or whatever it is, it still turns out to be very hard to to, to see spittle if indeed there was any spittle. And it now turns out that spittle or no spittle, you can still be a spitter. Can I just um, accept that I went to law school almost twenty years ago and know nothing about this, and there will be criminal lawyers listening to this game. This bloke is talking absolute rubbish. So I fully accept that and I apologise in advance. Not a problem. I enjoyed it and I, I accept everything you say as the truth and virtually nothing that Barry says is the truth. So like, I, I know which side of the fence that I'm on. Anyway, I feel like maybe this has come to a sort of natural conclusion, this podcast. Um, uh, there's Premier League on well tonight and tomorrow and Wednesday so we'll cover it all and any stuff we missed uh, on Wednesday and Thursday's pod but for the time being uh, Barry thank you thank you thank you Wilson cheers thank you thank you Barney cheers bye Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove our executive producer is Danielle Stevens this is The Guardian